Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. Welcome to Global Investment Leaders. I'm Chaz Burkhart, CEO of Rosemont. I'm pleased to have Ali McDonald, the CEO of Boston Common Asset Management, as my guest. Thanks for joining me. Ali, let's start with your background, because when we met, I didn't know you. Uh, we mm-hmm. met through our mutual friend, Megan Driscoll, I think, Yep. Um, who was very nice to introduce us as we were looking for a CEO to take the mantle from Gita Ayer at Boston Common. And obviously, Gita is still uh, very much with the firm, running both U.S. value equity and a mentor um, to many of your colleagues and speaking and writing and still very much involved. But we really were looking for somebody to take the reins from a leadership and management perspective. And after talking to lots of candidates, we met you and I thought instantly I thought you were a very compelling candidate, but I didn't know your background. Why don't you share with our audience a little bit about your background and how you came to this point? Sure. Well, um, I spent much of my career, Chaz, in traditional financial services in various roles, right? From the first, my first job out of school, I was a new wholesaler, very excited to carry the bag and, and, and talk about federated investors funds to, to financial advisors. And, and I stayed on that track for several years working at Goldman Sachs with various roles and, and held roles across sales and marketing and distribution, and then more leadership sales management and strategy roles and all around traditional financial services and philanthropy and financial services. So I worked at Fidelity Charitable and, and focused on the donor advised fund. I'm still very involved with donor advised funds today, and I sit on the Morgan Stanley donor advised fund board. But about 12 years ago, and I was running distribution for, for a, large, a large distribution channel for a large company, and I, and I decided that I had had a taste of, of having my you know, work have meaning. You know, I worked in a nonprofit for a year and and again, with the, with the financial services and the philanthropy kind of intersection and just decided that the intersection of investing and social good was where I was going to spend the rest of my career. So that was about 2012. And I, I made a personal commitment saying, I'm going to use my skills, experiences, anything I can bring to the table to help deploy more capital towards social good. So this is something that I focus on for people and planet and mission oriented, but it also really philosophically made sense to me that this way of investing, thinking about other factors and, and water usage and how your company affects the planet just made more sense from a shareholder perspective as well. So, so that's what I've been doing. And I had consulted for various companies. Many are collaborators and competitors of ours today. I had a successful consulting business and a not so successful attempt at a startup asset management firm. <laughs> Um, and actually, when I met you, my son had actually entered kindergarten. So just along the lines, I was very lucky to be able to have had a, a successful career and been able to, you know, take the foot off the gas for a little while with these consulting gigs, if you will. And my son had just entered kindergarten and I had been talking with Meg Driscoll, who you, who you mentioned, about her career. And my husband was always saying to me, you're constantly meeting with these women and giving them advice on their career. What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> like, where's your career? <laughs> And it's something I've always felt, you know, a high level of responsibility as, as women in male-dominated industries, you need to be always reaching down, up, across to, to say, how can we help each other? And, 
And actually that day that I spent with Meg, I didn't realize that was going to turn into an introduction to you. And then an introduction to, for me, basically a dream job, a job that fits all my, you know, things that I like to do, things that I think I'm good at. And, um, and joining VCAM in, in January of 2020 was, was truly serendipitous. Well, I think so. And uh, <laughs> we, we couldn't have been happier. I mean, oftentimes you don't want to celebrate too much at the, at the initial hire. You want to make sure that it sticks and you want to make sure that all is going according to plan. And I think from all reports, talking with your colleagues and talking with you so much these last two whole years, um, it's gone really well. Boston Common today, let's talk about where the firm is. It's about $5 billion in assets under management. 5.998, Chaz. <laughs> six billion. Let's yeah, yeah. And I think we had a good performance oh. day yesterday, so we're probably sitting at six billion today. And, and so for those that, that don't know Boston Common, who, who may be tuning in, um, we are an active global equities manager, long-only manager, who has employed um, ESG as, as not only in our investment process and integrated in, in all parts of the investment process, but it's really integrated into who we are as a firm. And that's from the day the firm started and, and was founded by Gita Iyer and, and Lauren Compare and Stephen Heim. As we're noticing more and more people coming into the ESG space, and that's great. This is something that we don't do as an afterthought. We don't do as, as something that our clients are asking us for. It's just who we are and what we do. So that's just to, to be clear on Boston Common is. And then how we sit today, so, so I think when, when you started talking to me, we were about 2.5, 2.7 billion in assets under management. And we've really been able to participate in growth over the last two years and in more than doubling our assets. And I attribute that to, to a lot of things. First, as we talked about the increased interest in, in ESG. Second, we've got really great long-term performance. So if people are paying attention and looking, they're seeing that you know, our international fund, our US value fund, the global impact fund, they'll all have very good relative performance. Third, I think there's this more of an interest, especially in Europe, for authentic ESG managers. We can talk a little bit about that, that later on. And then the interest in minority-owned managers, pensions are starting to, to say, okay, we've got we've to start looking this way and other allocators. And then lastly, we've been growing with, which, which is some of my favorite growth with endowments and foundations who want to mirror you know, their work with their investments, right? So, so if you're a, a foundation that cares about the environment, why are you long Exxon or long you know, stocks that are hurting the environment in your investment portfolio? So, so we've been working with, with more organizations like that. It's really been healthy across the board growth over the last couple of years, and we hope to keep that going. Yeah, been very happy to see that. Let's go to authenticity, actually, since you mentioned it. Mm -hmm. Why is it important to be authentic? What do you mean by authentic versus so much of the competition, which we would call green washers or folks that have come late to the game. What, do you, what does it mean to be an authentic ESG firm? I think the authenticity comes not just from the products you create, right? It comes from who you are. And I, and I address that a little bit. If people come to visit us in our, in our Boston office, we'll hand them, when they get here, they'll be handed an iPad and we'll ask them how they got here. So we'll be tracking their carbon footprint so we can make sure that we're replacing the, the carbon that it took to have someone come meet us. You know, we have composting in the, in the kitchen. Um, we, are, we are all very focused on you know, what's going on in the world and poverty and social justice and how do we, how do we think about that as, as people. But the authenticity, don't get the authenticity mixed up with 
philanthropy or activism. We are investors, right? We are investors, and this is just things that we think are better across the board for people. And, and we do think that companies will have better returns if they focus on things that are better for people, their stakeholders, the communities they operate in, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I, think, I think some of the, the, um, the focus on authenticity is, are you really doing this because you understand it deeply? You care about the, the issues and you're aware of the issues that will create either reduce risk in, in your investments or create new opportunities in your investments. And then you carry that all the way through into the portfolio creation. There's a, a movement out there because as we know, the next generation, thank goodness, are, are focused on these issues, care very deeply about, about the planet and equality. And they're going to demand that from their investment managers. And so I think where you really kind of can, can cut it down the line is, are you doing this because it's part of your process and you, and, and you integrate it deeply in what you do? Or are you doing this to create a product that might sell because it has a thematic name about it and, and therefore just um, adding some screening into, into your actual portfolio? We certainly see that, although sometimes I think it's hard to parse mm -hmm. uh, in the environment of so many competitors and this tidal wave of interest by seemingly every allocator and consultant. But you mentioned that you're investors, and yes, you are dyed-in-the-wool pioneering ESG folk, but you are investors, and you're an investment management company. And one of the things that we noted when we came on some years ago was that you were a very, this is pre-Ally pre McDonald, you were a conscientious investment management company, not just for ESG strategies and all that goes with that, but in how you manage the business. Gita, Nancy, Matt, and Christina for folks with whom I joined them on the board for some years, I found to be a very thoughtful, conscientious, earnest group of leaders. Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit rare. There's plenty of firms for whom management is a little bit of an absentee cause. Mm -hmm. Kind of we'll do when we need it, but they were very focused and very earnest about wanting to do right by employees, right by clients, be really thoughtful and organized with regard to the management of the business, financials, operations, compliance, et cetera. You joined the firm and let's talk a little bit about your leadership interests and the style and the DNA that you've brought to the company and where you're mm -hmm. taking it. It's a good setup, Chaz, because you did mention, uh, you know, those fabulous board members and founders who have been running this business, you know, we're running this business for 17 years before I got here. Right, so for me to come in and say, I'm going to apply my management style to this company that's been run as a partnership in a very collaborative way would be crazy. And, and so I take a very democratic approach to leadership at this point, being very collaborative with all the people who came before me, making sure the great things about Boston Common I'm not breaking or harming and taking the things that need a little extra love and care and, and making them better. I would say after a couple of years, I mean, my natural style is a, my natural leader, leadership style is a pace setting style. Like, okay, match my intensity. Let's go. We're off, we're off on a race. You are a runner. Exactly. That would make sense. Yeah, exactly. And with some people here, we, we get there in those that are on the distribution side and, and that type of thing. But, but really, I mean, with such a great culture, just a great business that was here, making sure that, you know, I'm hearing everyone and that we're being collaborative is important, you know, at this point. 
And then, and then working through to add in a little bit of the, you know, urgency and some, you know, excellence and expertise in areas that might not have already been at, at, at Boston Common. I, I would completely agree with that description, that self-analysis, even though I put you <laughs> on the spot. And as you know, Allie, after we uh, brought you on two years ago, uh, we were excited for a long future together, even though that was still in our private equity investment days. We thought there was a long road ahead and then AMG showed up and it was unexpected. And I don't think any of us were looking for liquidity or an exit, but AMG made a very compelling proposition to you. And you replaced Rosemont with AMG as a minority investor a year plus ago. Yes. And I think that's gone very well. Talk a little bit about that transition. And I think, Chaz, if, if you recall, as is happening with many of the authentic or pioneering ESG boutiques of our size, um, it's, it's not just firms looking to take a partial interest in your company. We had some very serious interests from firms that wanted to buy all of Boston Common uh, and, and have us become part of a you know, publicly traded company. And, and you were part of those conversations. And one of the things that I think is so impressive about Gita and the, the founders and the partners here is that where there was a lot of money on the line, the team made the decision that we are going to remain majority employee-owned, independent, and authentic, and we're going to protect our ability to operate the way we want to. We are not going to be owned by a company where parts of their business lines may not be appealing to us or, or a company that we wouldn't necessarily own as a, as a stock holding for, for one of our strategies. And, and it was a, you know, it was early in my time here. And, and as you remember, I recused myself because I, I hadn't had uh, enough skin in the game at that point and wanted the partners to make the decision on their own. And, and it was a great decision. In, in retrospect, then, you know, AMG came along and said, hey, we'd love to, you know, we're growing our business around ESG and, and we see you as, a, you know, a great boutique. And they, I think, set up one of the, the few three-way deals that was a win-win-win in financial services that, that I've ever seen. So, yes, we, we took out the Rosemont private equity, although we remain very good friends. Um, and, and AMG actually sold 5% back to the company. So we sit today at 85% employee owned, AMG owns 15% and we are now 54% female owned. Now, one of the other things that you just mentioned, which we clearly want to touch on is being a woman led and importantly, majority woman owned business, which as you know, Allie, is pretty rare. It's actually exceedingly rare among what I would call commercially successful investment mm -hmm. firms. Not that they're not out there, but those that have actually achieved some level of commercial success are very rare indeed. Rosemont has had the pleasure of backing several. What does it mean to you to keep that going? And why is it important? What is it about your client base, prospects, consultants, your employees? Mm -hmm. Talk about why it's important to try to maintain that. So I think there's a couple of things in there. The, the first is you know coming in as a female CEO it wasn't that hard at BCAM because BCAM was always led by women. <laughs> it was founded by women. I will tell you, though, leading other divisions or, or groups at big companies, coming in as a female leader when there's never been a leader there before is an extraordinarily hard thing to do. Whether people are doing it subconsciously or consciously, the amount of criticism and, and you know, gender-based 
issues that come up. And there's this constant, I mean, this goes back 10 years. I can think about sitting at a, at a table full of RIAs of the discussion of, we just can't find enough women. There's just not enough senior women that can either lead or be a, you know, be um, an investor. And that's too bad because I think women make great leaders and, and um, there should be more of us. And, and we can talk a little bit about you know, how, how I think about getting more into the mix. But the importance today is now allocators, pension funds, and others are saying, okay, wait a minute, we're talking about diversity. And it's just not having, you know, an international manager and, a, you know, all the different asset classes from different firms. It's also who's leading them and who's making the ultimate decision at these firms. And we need to add more women into our mix because therefore we're not diverse right now. So, so that's a big plus for us. And I think that 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 will help motivate other firms that are looking at, okay, we've got John here, we've got Mary, they're kind of equal. Mary should be the CEO, right? So, so I think if we can start kind of creating these, these opportunities where people realize this is, this is something really good to do. But it's tough. It, it, it's tough. And, you know, I was just talking with our partners at Markel mm-hmm. and uh, they were hiring a new colleague and they had 85 or 90 applicants and of those perhaps eight were women mm-hmm. so you just start with the overall proportion of applicants to a job and then kind of whittling down you they, they actually told me and they in fact they just recently hired a senior analyst and it's a man and the uh my colleague at markel i was talking to this about said we so tried we really really wanted to hire a woman but it came down to kind of the top five candidates there was only one and it was clear that in the end that was not the best fit you could extrapolate that argument to lots of different hiring. And I know you mm-hmm. and I have talked a little bit about the labor market. Mm-hmm. So why don't you follow on there about the labor market, um, both for women and kind of both the training and the career path that you are trying to take people down and give people opportunity. So first, if you don't mind, I'm going to go back to where you're, you're, what you just described is the pipeline problem, right? So what everyone says is there's just not enough women. We can't find any women. And and that is probably true, right? Because the majority of people who started this business, the financial, especially the financial services, you can apply to technology too, are, are men. And first thing first, I don't think it's human nature because I don't think we're born with it, but I think we're socialized to be comfortable with people who look like us and act like us and, and talk like us, right? That's why people say, you know, managers hire in their own image. If you are naturally predisposed to hire people that look like you and most of the people in the business are men, then you can, you can honestly, like in your own mind, say to yourself, well, the best candidate is a man. I'm sorry. We've looked at them. They're just not enough qualified women or qualified people of color or you know, X, Y, Z all the, all the way down. And, and I think there, there is this kind of getting women into the, to the financial services mix opportunity earlier in their careers and, and having them stay. What I do find, and I've worked at some really large companies, what you end up seeing is more women will be hired into like a client service department and you'll have more women coming out of college. We do today and the entry level jobs will get there and then they'll get into middle management and you'll meet this brick in the middle, which is usually a, you know, some man who's making the decision. The CEO really wants women, right? Like, don't get me wrong. There's like a lot of great intention, especially at the tops of these companies where they want women to come up. And what either happens is you get stuck by this brick in the middle and can't get through. And then women say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go out of here and and go do something else or, you know, that kind of thing. And so they, so they tend to, to opt out. And so there's this issue there. The other thing is thinking about 
hiring non-traditional candidates or where you're sourcing your labor. And, you know, the usual suspects, if you want to change who is in your mix, you have to change how you're looking for candidates. Like it, it, maybe it isn't the usual search firm. Maybe, and LinkedIn actually is an excellent place. We've had a lot of luck finding great diverse candidates on, on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm not promoting that stock or promoting it. <laughs> Just to be clear. Uh, but but there is this this uh, concept of you know it it maybe it isn't Harvard Princeton and the and the best schools maybe there are some really great hardworking people at community college that are are doing great things uh-huh. and and maybe it's someone who's left the workforce and you want to bring them back in and one of my favorite stories ever is I had a a, a gentleman I was at a table at a, at a dinner and he was complaining about how he can't he's like Ellie I just can't find any women like where are the women like you why can't I find any. And then not even 10 minutes later, he's having a conversation with another man at the table. He goes, you know what I just did? I just hired my kid's lacrosse coach. He's now going to be advisor for me. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) so, so a guy lacrosse coach is okay, but you can't find women that you want someone like me who's been in financial services, their whole career to hire for (laughs) for that. So, so it's just really, I I think, I hear you not to go on my soapbox too long, but I, I really think the best way to solve this is everyone to just recognize their biases and, and just try to get out of their comfort zone and try to find the, the right candidates and, and, and bring them in. As you said, we could have a whole separate podcast on it. <laughs> you know, our beautiful friend, Jim Ware at Focus Consulting Group has done a lot on cognitive or unconscious bias and done a lot on leadership and um, management styles and issues and, and how you break through some of that. And actually in his leadership group, I've noticed a number of very capable senior women, but it's got to start early. Let's pivot to beyond the labor market and the gender makeup of uh, Boston Common to just the competitive environment. Among institutional managers and among the folks that you see uh, and just other forms of competition, are you finding that there are allocators, foundations, public funds, corporations, et cetera, that are trying to do some of the ESG and impact work in-house are there kind of chassis being built or efforts and, and money being put to work in-house at places whereby they would say, look, we can put together you know, our ESG imprimatur. Then we just need kind of investors, almost like the model portfolio approach. Then we'll just need you to implement what we create. Are you finding that anywhere? Yes. It is very popular. Most wealth management firms will feel that they can, with U.S. equities specifically, feel that they can create their own ESG models and do that work for their clients. And there's, there's been a whole host of efforts, and, and sometimes even at some of the larger wirehouse-type places, there'll be one or two teams who have some expertise or knowledge in, in ESG, and they will run a, a few models for almost you know, the entire force so they can actually keep those in-house. And some of them are actually really quite good. We recently had a, there was about a $2 billion RA come to us and say, we tried to do this on our own. We were trying to run the, the ESG models ourselves and realize we're, you know, falling short and we'd love, you know, for you to help us with that. I don't, we don't necessarily see that as, as competition. Those are, those are efforts and people can certainly do that. Where I think those that are in the know come to realize on, especially on long only and especially in U.S. equities, if what you're really trying to do as a as an active ESG integrator is outperform, right? So we we aim at outperforming our our indices uh, at all times, but also have more impact. And really, to have impact in public equities, you have to engage the companies, and it's something that 
more and more, we're seeing that pop up, Chaz. That's something to me that, you know, there's, there's indexers out there or passive ESG investors are saying, yeah, we, we now engage the companies because they're realizing that there's more investors that are interested in the fact that we not only initiate purchase of a company after we've done the ESG research on them, but we then send them a letter saying, here are our findings on your ESG profile. We'd love to talk to you about issue A, B, and C. If you're interested, let's have a call. And then we move forth to, to work with the company. And, and the benefit there is truly, we feel if their ESG profile gets better, they're going to be a better stock for us to own. They'll be a better company. And then that's the way that we have more impact, making them be aware of their energy and resource usage, their diversity profile, you know, their, their governance issues. And, and so, so that really, to me, is where there's some competitors starting to say, hey, we need to start doing that. And then in terms of, of separate firms and uh, whether they're parented or employee-owned firms, do you see more the Parnassus and the impacts and more the employee-led businesses, or do you see more the kind of the larger institutional firms like a Goldman Sachs or a BlackRock? Yeah, on the on the endowment side of things, we are competing with the usual suspects who who somewhat look like us, <laughs> like the trilliums, um, is is where that comes down. And then on on other mandates, it really depends on the asset class, right? Our EFA product is our flagship product, and and we'll have names that you know that aren't household names necessarily that we'll be going up against to. Um, do that. We don't compete with Parnassus. Parnassus is really mostly a mutual fund shop. And, and so we, we don't see them a lot. Uh, they're now affiliate partners with us at, <laughs> and impact same. They, they tend to compete more on the environmental thematic side and we don't, we don't necessarily see them as, as, as much, but, but no, there's a, there's a lot more people. And I think what everyone on my team would say is that there's, there's an enormous pie out there for people who want to do this right. And we hope someday this will just be called investing, right? You, you pay attention to, to how labor is treated. You pay attention to water usage. You pay attention to, you know, chemicals and safety and all of those things. And that becomes something that a analyst is pricing into your, into your company anyway. And, and, it, and it doesn't have its own little acronym. And the more people that do that and the more we change capitalism to think more about people and planet, I think the better off we'll all be those considerations will become more ordinary and less extraordinary. Mm -hmm. We could go a lot longer, Ali, but I'm really happy that you took some time to join me today. And look, uh, back to your running uh, career and analogy, you're really, really only in the second or third mile of your marathon with Boston Comedy. <laughs> Long way to go. So I'm rooting for you and, uh, and hope that you've got a great uh, career uh, blossoming at Boston Common. Thank you, Chaz, and thanks for all you've done for us and that you continue to do for our space. Appreciate it. Thank you.